Think Tech, Tech Talks. Tech is our middle name. Matter of fact, it's our double middle name. <laughs> Twice as nice. <laughs> Steve Zerker. Yes. From the Scheidler College and from the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan. What a guy. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you multiple for coming hats. back. It's great to have you here. Thank again. you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you here, Jay. I wanted to explore with you, um, you know, the relationship in terms of entrepreneurial things between Hawaii and Japan. Okay. Let's begin with Japan. What's your connection there? How long have you been there? What okay. are you doing there? Okay. Well, I originally went to Japan as an exchange student at Kansai Gaide. That was in the late 70s. So that was my introduction to the country, and I uh, fell in love with it at that time. I uh, went back to graduate uh, from San Francisco State University in economics, and then through some connections, ended up working in the software world back in the mid-1980s. That was my introduction into tech. Um, and I always had a dream uh, to be able to mix my love of Japan with my love of the software world after I discovered that. And lo and behold, after I got my MBA at Scheidler, um, a friend of mine at Hewlett Packard says, we have the perfect job for you. It was a project, uh, project manager job for tech search and retrieval, so, you know, pre-Google. And uh, I was able to get into Hewlett Packard, and I started. I didn't know was I didn't know there was a world pre Google. <laughs> it's know. hard to imagine, it was isn't like it? Stone Age pre Google. Right? <laughs> I certainly understand that. I, I don't think I can get through the day without Google. But anyway, uh, Hewlett Packard hired me, and um, I was able through uh, another software group to get a job as as a business development person in Japan. So. I represented Hewlett Packard's software industry, software business in Japan. I did that for about four or five years, was very, very successful. Speak Japanese? I do. Uh, I'm not fluent, but uh, that was helpful. Actually, most of my business dealings, I was dealing with most of the major OEMs like Hitachi and Toshiba, and the people who are foreign facing are always English speakers. So I, I used English. That was one of the few advantages that I had because I had many disadvantages trying to understand Japanese business culture. But I, I um, I was able to land a deal with Hitachi, which was uh, the IBM of Japan. And uh, after that, I did several OEM agreements. So I built up this uh, reserve of experience of working with Japanese OEMs, selling them Hewlett Packard software. Then um, I did, that launched me into a regional development job, vice president of Asia for various other companies. I ended up leaving Hewlett Packard uh, about the Carly Fiorina time, if that, if that rings a bell with you. Some stories about her. Maybe I shouldn't share that on the open internet here, but uh, she was an interesting She's character. Person, yeah. yeah, she was a special person. Um, and ran, then ran for president. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. And uh, then after that, uh, I decided to go back to school. I got a PhD from Case Western Reserve University in management. And uh, about eight, or eight years or so ago, I began teaching at the same university where I was an exchange student many, many years prior. So I'm a professor of uh, management at Kansai Gaida University, which is in Osaka, Japan. And one of the things I do is I teach entrepreneurship. So I do that actually in Japan, mostly with foreign students and some Japanese students mixed in. And then here, this summer, I'm working at Scheidler and I teach entrepreneurship as well. So I see entrepreneurship, at least within the classroom setting, in, in Japan. In the winter, Osaka, in the summer? Well, full-time full in, in uh, Kansai Gaida is where yeah. my normal job is. And then I have a summer break, so I come to Hawaii and teach here. Cool. Sorry, this is such a long answer, but the other uh, part of it is teach that... Teach in English, I think. I teach in English, yeah. But I've also gotten involved in venture capital in Japan through various investment funds. 
and um, also I'm an angel investor in Japan and also in the United States. Uh, my most recent investment in Japan is a brewery. Really? Yeah, a beer Saku? startup. Yeah, well, no, beer. So it's, it's craft brewery, craft beer, artesian beer. It's a small one in Lake uh, Iwa, Iwako, which is in Kyoto. That's my latest investment. Um, I think Alan, who you met before, thinks I'm crazy to invest in that one, but it's, it's a fun one. So I have an experience of investing in Japanese uh, companies. Not necessarily tech. Uh, so, yeah, I go outside of tech. I mean, that's my uh, forte, obviously, because of my business experience. But, you know, if I find a good team, uh, if I find an interesting opportunity, um, I'll, I'm willing to invest in other opportunities mm -hmm. uh, in Japan and in the United States as well. So anyway, a long-winded answer for you there. I have this broad experience of direct business experience and then teaching about it, and then more recently as an investor. So uh, I was asking you before the show, and I'm so interested in this. Yes. Is, you know, the, I wouldn't say the, the, the American business culture invented entrepreneurshipism because that's yeah. so everywhere in the world. It's a French word, so they, they came up with the word. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we certainly have refined it in recent years anyway, especially right. around tech. Especially in California, right? Uh, you know, in sort of a partnership with New York, and the, the two coasts get together and yeah. create this, um, you know, business entrepreneurial environment, and mm -hmm. and then it all goes to IPO, and after that, you know, right. it's, it's history. Um, but it's different in Japan. Different. Yes. And, and I, I'd like you to help me understand the differences between, say, what goes on in Silicon Valley with all these entrepreneurial experiences and venture capital experiences, mm -hmm. and what goes on in Japan. Yeah, that's something, obviously, I thought about a great deal through the various stages of my career. When I was representing Hewlett-Packard selling software to Japan, I would ask myself, why am I doing this? Why don't they have their own software industry? Why aren't they coming up with products that are equal or maybe even superior to ours? So to, to think about Silicon Valley, I'm from actually San Francisco originally, so I'm, I'm a San Francisco product. I think part of the culture there was an openness and a willingness to embrace new things. You know, you think about the hippies in the 60s and the gay community that grew in San Francisco. There's so San Francisco, for whatever reason, its cultural roots had an openness to new things. And technology kind of fit right into that starting in the 1970s and 1980s. Of course, having Berkeley and Stanford and other fine universities in that area contributed a flow of a really smart computer science graduates, you know, Hewlett Packard, and many of them rolled out of there. Uh, and then uh, venture capital yeah, kind of started there, although I, it was rooted also in the East Coast. I remember the days when the East Coast was actually dominant over the West Coast. In venture capital. In venture capital, and then the, the, um, the name computer companies, like digital, for example. Um, so they were actually preeminent, uh, but then eventually California, Silicon Valley in particular, eclipsed them probably maybe into the 1980s or so. So that's the infrastructure, I think, that uh, helped grow the entrepreneurial culture in Silicon Valley. And that's kind of the model now. That's pervasive throughout the United States and throughout the world. And when you take that, though, and you apply it to Japan, you run into these cultural impediments. So Japan, even though you can think of many marquee companies, like you were saying Sony when we were off air before, Honda or others, it started in the pre-World War II period. Uh, when the economy began to grow and the society solidified. They were no longer uh, kind of starving. You know, it was kind of a desperate time after World War II in Japan. 
Once that they established their economy and began to grow quickly, like in 1968, they became the number two economy in the world. Then I think the previous cultural preferences began to set in, more of a conservative nature began to set in. Government involvement and bank involvement in venture capital or startups just didn't make sense within that cultural context. It's interesting, um, you know, the, the, the vital period, you know, the, the logarithmic growth period where you don't necessarily see it, but you know it's, it's, it's happening. Yep. Um, there's a book written by Simon Winchester, who is a, a writer, an academician with the East-West Center, mm -hmm. called Pacific. Mm -hmm. And one of the early chapters, each chapter is about a, an iconic story defining the Pacific region. Um, one of the iconic stories he wrote up was the story of Sony. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking about this with um, Alan, Alan Miner last week. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting. So Sony was involved in the war. They were, they were making primitive electronic equipment for the war. Uh-huh. Okay, and there were two partners, and uh, one of them, I guess, was Marita, the guy you He's know, the who was for so many years. That's right. Um, and um, they realized that they were behind the curve and they had to get global. And they had heard that somewhere in Canada, I want to say Winnipeg, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really nowhere compared, you know, com compared to Japan. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the cold of Winnipeg, mm -hmm. there were some people working on something called the transistor. So they sent two young fellows out mm -hmm. across the world, go to Winnipeg and find out everything they could find out, and maybe, if possible, get a license on this technology. Mm -hmm. And they did. They got a license and they brought it back to for, Japan. For Japan? Or? For the transistor, yeah. They oh. brought it back to Japan mm -hmm. for the Sony company. I think it was called something different then. Yeah, it had a different name. That's right. And, um, and, and presto, we have the, the Sony radio, which was the beginning of Sony's success. Yep. And look what, it, look what it is now, or what it, at its height. I'm not sure yeah. it's at its height anymore. But, um, so that, that's, that's very unusual because I worked for a number of years at Hewlett Packard, you know, and they prided themselves on their engineering. And part of the reason why HP was not able to innovate when software became more dominant is that there was a sense that our engineers are the smartest ones in the world. We're the only ones who can come up with great products. And I think Japanese established blue chip companies also believe that as well. So for Sony to go out and source alternative technology and bring it in, that is very, very different common model for Japanese business development. Yeah. yeah. It had a big effect. So you're saying, though, that after a while, that kind of cutting-edge mentality yeah. dissolved into the, the classical conservative approach. Yeah. So my favorite story of, to illustrate that is that DNA, which is a, a mobile gaming company, it's very well established. They own a baseball team. Right? So whenever a company owns a baseball team, you know they've made it, right? <laughs> so Namasan, who's the founder of that company, she was talking at a lecture that I went to about some of the challenges, and she said one of the big things is to be able to hire talented engineers out of the better schools. And she told the story that I think it was a Waseda graduate uh, was thinking about joining her company, and her mother, I'm sorry, his mother, came and pounded on the door of Namasan and was crying and pleading with her, please. I sent my son through Waseda. Do not hire him at your no-name company that I have no idea if is going to be successful. I want him to work for the government, or I want him to work for Hitachi or Sony. So she said that is what she faced, and that was a successful company. That just shows oftentimes the students themselves, the engineers, do not see themselves uh, in an entrepreneurial setting because it's just too risky. And if you fail in Japan, there's consequences. 
All of Japan will be ashamed. Yeah, there's that shame issue. You know, in Silicon Valley, when you fail, people go, oh, you'll be better because you'll learn from that. But that kind of accepting attitude doesn't really exist in Japan. Yeah. And uh, also, um, yeah, the government up until recently has not really not been supportive of entrepreneurial development. Now, I have to say that things are changing in Japan. So the, people well, ask- changed while you've been there, no? Yeah, they have. And when it comes to entrepreneurship, so, um, there have been a few success stories in the last few years that have uh, maybe helped to change the perception about startup companies and the value that they can bring, and also from an investment perspective, the return on investment. Um, so venture capital, although it, it is nothing compared to the United States or China for that matter, China's gone from zero to equal levels, if not more, than the United States in the last 10 years or so. Uh, but Japan, Japan's numbers are going up, and there does seem to be greater opportunity and uh, maybe a little bit more flexibility, but it's still 10 to 15% mm -hmm. of, of what the U.S. startup, so, startup that, environment's like. What that tells me, uh, it's not necessarily a happy thought, what that tells me is they're going to look to the U.S. Uh, as the primary entrepreneurial community in, in the world. Right. Um, and they're going to take their signals from the U.S. and they're going to they're be slightly conservative because they see themselves as behind the U.S. in terms of entrepreneurial activity? Yeah. I think in many aspects of Japanese business culture, and certainly a political culture, Japan looks to America. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, they, maybe, Jay, you're right. I don't know if that's the right solution, though. The criticism is beginning to mount. Um, the number of AI uh, professionals, the AI graduates in Japan is relatively small compared to the rest of the world. And artificial intelligence right now is where a lot of venture capital is going to... Got to get on the boat, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the founder of SoftBank was criticizing Japan recently and saying Japan's like a third world country because they're so far behind in artificial intelligence. And then his latest vision fund is focused on artificial intelligence. And he can't find Japanese engineers to hire for companies that he'd like to start in Japan. Why? Um... Are they not studying it? I, I, this is my own opinion, is that there's probably interest. Uh, this is a little bit harsh, maybe, but I've been in Japanese education now for a number of years. I think the university systems are failing the young people and failing industry. That they're not teaching students the proper skills to be successful in the IT world that we're living in now, the software world. It's a global world. IT world. Yeah, and yeah, another story I can tell, uh, this one engineer, the founder of a company, he went to Keio, their computer science department. He graduated, and he realized they didn't teach me how to program. He graduated after four years at Keio, which is one of the best private schools in Japan. And he looked at that and said, these professors are teaching abstract theory having to do with uh, computer IT-related matters, they're not teaching me how to program and how to actually become successful as a businessman. So he was saying, and I agree actually based on my observations, not necessarily in IT, but just in general, is the education system is still preparing students for the 1970s and 1980s. So that's a problem. Reminds me of a, I went to a lunch a few years ago with the vice mayor of Beijing, the vice mayor. Okay. And I said to him, I said, you know, good for you, good for Beijing, good for China. Because 29% of all of your college graduates are engineers. And he said, yes, well, thank you, but it's not 29%, it's 59%. <laughs> wow. 
So, I mean, that's the world to come. That's oh. what any country needs to have to compete globally. Yeah, Jay, I would say that's the world of today. So I've been reading through my IT sources that uh, the innovation, especially in the AI area, in China equals or maybe even surpasses what's going on in the U.S. I just saw actually this morning a graph through um, a news source that I get. It was showing the percentage of AI engineers, it used to be pretty much dominated by the United States, like 60%, but it showed a graph over the last few years, the US is trending down to 40% overall, this is worldwide, and the rest of the world is going up, and a big part of that is China. So they get software. Whereas we were talking earlier, Japan is still struggling to wrap their minds around the development of software, the value of software. Maybe for these cultural reasons, I can't really say because I didn't live in China and haven't studied this too, too deeply, but it seems like the Chinese business culture and the education system and maybe the government leadership is allowing China to rapidly go up the curve. And maybe, although most Americans don't want to hear this, even surpass the United States when it comes to innovation development, especially in the AI area. And that's what I'm reading now, not necessarily in general news, but through the tech news. Before he retired, Bill Gates and one of his buddies from uh, uh, Microsoft <clears throat> took a trip around the country to every college campus they could manage, trying to encourage people to study computer science. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reality was that not enough people were studying computer science. The reality was Microsoft and a lot of these tech companies in the U.S., well, they're global now, were getting their engineers from overseas. Oh, yeah. We had a show here on ThinkTech a few years ago. Right. where there was a team of, of, of engineers from Microsoft visiting uh, Hawaii, and we got them all on the show. It was really something. Oh, cool. They were all from somewhere else. They right. were all born somewhere else. Yeah. And so yep. the U.S. is, is uh, clearly the U.S. is falling behind, especially in the advanced uh, you know, computer science. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are examples of, of great success, like Stanford, their AI system, or their AI department is rated number one in the world and that their graduates are getting multiple hundred thousands of dollars when they graduate, so but that's not enough. You know, that's maybe what, I don't know, 30 or 40 or 50 engineers that are graduating. That doesn't meet the demand. To your point about the foreigners' usage within IT companies, uh, Rakuten, have you, have you heard of Rakuten? They're like uh, e-commerce. They're the number one e-commerce company in Japan, Some, somewhat similar to Amazon, but a different business model. They're very famous. A few years ago, they decided to flip their internal language from Japanese to English. It made huge news. So all Japanese employees within Rakuten in Japan were supposed to speak in English. And Mikitani, he's the founder of Rakuten, decided, I want to be a global company. We need to do this. One of the reasons he did that, 80% of his engineers were foreign. 80. And by flipping to Foreigners English, to it was... Foreigners, yeah, too. so they were IT graduates from all over the world that he was recruiting. And if he had English as a standard language, that was one of the stumbling blocks. So he could tell them, no, English is the official language within Rakuten. You can work. So it's 80%. So they're struggling. One of the business ideas that I have is, you know, boot camps have taken off in America is to maybe come up with boot camps to bypass the Japanese education system and try and prepare high school graduates to become developers. In France, they've done that in the United States. One of the many ideas in the back of my mind to start a business. So what have you been teaching? I teach entrepreneurship and marketing. Those two uh, classes. And I that covers all kinds of entrepreneurship. Well, yeah, I focus on what it is to become an entrepreneur and within a class setting, which is kind of an 
artificial reality uh, as much as I can within the class setting to share what I've gone through in the various startups that I've been a part of and what it's like to develop your own business with the initial idea, to write a business plan, to make presentations, to try and get funding. So next week here at Scheidler, Peter Rowan, I know you know Peter, and some others will be judges for my students who will be presenting their own internally developed business plans. And they'll be rating them, number one, number two, and number so three. What you teach there, what you teach here is pretty, pretty oh, much exactly the same. same thing. Yeah, I do exactly same the course. same. Same course. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So how do you compare the students between Japan and Shadda? Oh, well, you're putting me on the spot, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Be diplomatic. <laughs> um, some of the students here, um, I think, have what it takes. You know, I can read it because I've been in business so long. You can do a read on people. I think have the capability to be successful entrepreneurs. One thing that I find um, is that they often don't think beyond Hawaii. You know, and they should, because this is such a small part of the overall world economy. Um, so that's often a challenge. So I think there's a number of students have gone through that class that I think could become capable entrepreneurs. Now my class at Kansai Gaidai, 80% of those students are from all over the world. So I have French and Swedes. And everybody, all, these students, because of the success of Shark Tank, um, they all want to be entrepreneurs. So the motivation is extremely high. So I would say maybe the percentage is a little bit higher uh, with those students eventually becoming, at least potentially, becoming successful. In Japan. As well. Some of them want to set up business in Japan. One of the interesting things is that because the Japanese entrepreneurial community is so small and the cultural forces there are, are kind of aggressive, not aggressively, but preventing entrepreneurship from really flowering, foreigners have this great opportunity to come in and kind of fill the void that exists in terms of entrepreneurship. So I know several people through the American Chamber of Commerce that have started their own business and have done extremely well. People from, from the U.S., for example. From the U.S. primarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. one sold his business uh, for 300, he sold half of his business uh, to Entity Docomo for $350 million. And this was a, um, on, not online, but TV-based marketing program, like, like home shopping. Mm -hmm. So that didn't exist in Japan when Harry came up with this idea. This and arbitrage, idea arbitrage. It was, but, but the thing is, everyone told him, no Japanese people are going to buy things off the TV. They have to go into the store and see it. That was the prevailing kind of myth about consumer behavior. And he said, oh, we'll try it and see. Huge success. It's a global world. Yeah. So what, what about that, though? Um, the, the, the students in Japan, yes. uh, they, they can do uh, entrepreneurial things in Japan. They're probably better. I shouldn't say better, because it could be that, that people from outside a given country can better understand the market in that country somehow. Sometimes, yeah, you have that perspective. But uh, are, they, uh, are, they, are they also doing entrepreneurial things outside of Japan? Coming from Japan to the U.S., to Hawaii, for example, to start a business here. Yeah, that's, there's a little bit of brain drain that's going on in Japan. So if a company gets started and begins to gain traction, especially if they have a global focus to start with, rather than just focusing on the Japanese economy alone, um, sometimes even the investors will say, you need to go to Silicon Valley. You know, to be successful at the global level, Japan, not supportive, you need to go. So there are Japanese entrepreneurs that are at various Parts of the United States that maybe have gone on their own because they figure their chances are better. 
becoming successful in the U.S. and then maybe coming back to Japan later. That's a common model. Success in the U.S. or oh, abroad and then go back to Japan. Uh, or sometimes the investors are saying, we, you know, we want you to achieve ramp up in terms of revenue much quicker and we think you can do that better if you go to the United States. Now, do they come to Hawaii? Not that I'm aware of. So I, I would love to give you a better answer, Jay, on that no, no, one. No, but right? there may be some that I'm not aware of. Always but... looking for opportunities, you know? Yeah. And you flip it around now and say, well, suppose I'm at Shidler School. Yes. I'm studying in your course and I get excited about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, how can I express my entrepreneurial initiative vis-a-vis um, -vis Japan? Mm -hmm. Should I go to Japan first? Should I start my business here and then go to Japan? Uh, you know, I you know, talking before about how the Japanese might start a business elsewhere and then come back. Yes. I'm, I'm always thinking that uh, if you want to go global, you have to start local uh, somewhere. Yes. Uh, and, and then, you know, if you're, if you're good, then you, then you, That's... And you should go global because any really successful business now is global. You know? Right. Yes, I agree. I think generally that's how things are done. You start in the market that you know best and the one that you're from. And then if you experience some level of success, you implementally grow. I mean, the companies I work for in the mainland, um, they would be successful in the U.S. domestic market, and then they would go international, which meant Canada or, or Mexico. You know, that's the first step, right? And yeah, then if sure. they're successful there, then they go to Europe, maybe England or, or Germany is a traditional landing spot. And then Asia would be the one after that. So that was kind of a stair-step process. When I talk to my students, I, I say the same thing that you just said, that when you think about starting a business, especially one that's internet-related and you have access to the global market just through the technology, that you should think globally to begin with. And there are some companies that are doing like Groupon. And they haven't been ultimately successful, but when they started... What did they do? Uh, Groupon was, uh, it's a, a company that allows you to get discounts. Oh, at discounts, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. restaurants. So they had a kind of a glory period maybe five or six years ago. And they, but their, their uh, business plan strategy to begin with was instantaneously global coverage. So they set up operations in 30 different countries all over the world from the beginning. That was the approach that, that founder took, which was a very smart approach. So yeah, my students that are in my class right now, I've already told them, think beyond Hawaii. If you want to actually genuinely become an entrepreneur, come up with something uh, that would make sense, maybe back to the mainland or to the Japanese. You know, I know because I live in Japan how popular Hawaii is, the food, the culture. Uh, there's, Japanese people just love this state. Um, I've had so many friends that have come here, Japanese friends, and they go for the first time and they fall in love with this. They want to come back again and again and again. So Hawaii has tremendous mind share within Japanese consumers. I don't know what the numbers are, but it's millions of Japanese that have come to Hawaii. So that provides, I think, a market opportunity for people here who can figure out some way to be successful locally and then also tap into the Japanese people who have a positive perception. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. It's all about understanding what the market wants. Yes. That's, that's what, you've got to be able to do that these days. Yeah, the, the, the strategy now, what investors look for is product market. You've got to come up with something that has a demonstrated market and the people who are in that market are willing to spend money to buy. So that's really the crucial determinant of success. So, I mean, I'm, we're always interested, I'm always interested in, in trying to develop a tech industry 
or at least an entrepreneurial industry here. Yeah. And I wonder if you could comment on hmm. what the, you know, you said that in Japan there were impediments. Uh, oh, yes. Classical cultural impediments that you had to get by. Right. And, and we probably still had a, you know, a dampening effect. Mm. What about Hawaii? Hawaii is largely a Japanese culture. Doesn't it have the same impediments? So are we, are we as free and creative and innovative and aggressive and ambitious as, for example, Silicon Valley? Or do we have impediments too? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since I'm from the Bay Area, but I spent a great deal of time here in Hawaii, um, there's a gap. And maybe it is because of the Asian influence to some sort. I mean, maybe parents of kids that are going to schools here in Hawaii or maybe on the mainland, they want them to take more stable positions. I often talk to my Japanese students in my classes, what do you want to do when you graduate? I want to work for the government. I want to work in a bank. And then alternatively, I'll, I'll find students that I know have the spark, especially women. I find them and I tell them, you know, I think you can become an entrepreneur. And they look at me, and it's like I'm saying, flap your wings and fly to the moon. <laughs> They're all you know, <laughs> equally impossible. So maybe that's a part of it here in Hawaii. I know the, the government here has been investing for decades. I think I told you, Jay, when I graduated from UH from the MBA school, I applied to the Manoa Innovation Center. So that was back in 91. So I know it goes back to then. I didn't get the job. I ended up going into Cheer up the center is out of business anyway. Yeah. So I know the government sees the value of this and they're investing in it, but uh, it just doesn't seem to have caught yet. So like we were talking about before, we, we need to have a clear winner that people can look at. These parents can look at it and go, oh, I get it. That company is really taken off and I can see my son or daughter working for that company. Until we have that in Hawaii, it's a tough sell. Well, last, last question before, yes. before we run out of time. I wanted you to, you know, talk, talk to the people in Hawaii, talk to the students in Hawaii. Yes. Talk to the kids of all ages in Hawaii and tell them why it's important to have an entrepreneurial mindset for the future of our state, our people. Yes. Um, and how you do that. Well, I, I think I'd answer that at two levels. For half of my career, I worked for big, big companies. And half of my career, I worked for startups. And I have to say that the most enjoyable times was working for startups. It's hectic, it's chaotic, but you get a sense of accomplishment if you actually drive things forward. So if you think about um, getting um, greater joy and maybe greater feedback, positive feedback, I think entrepreneurship, even though it's risky uh, and challenging, uh, there's a greater sense of return. I'm, I'm talking beyond financial. Psychic. Just in terms of making a difference in the world, having ah. a positive impact on the world. Mm. You know, I did great things when I was working for Hewlett Packard, and I loved Hewlett Packard, but I was one of 60,000, right? If you do the same thing for a small company or your own company, and you realize it's because of my work that this company has been successful, that's a great, great thing. So, you know, think of what Steve Jobs did for the world. He, didn't, he was not motivated by the finances. He said that over and over again. He was motivated by making the world a better place. So that's one aspect. So just personal satisfaction. I think it's greater with smaller businesses, based on my experience. The second thing is that if you really want to help Hawaii, this is the way to do it. Hawaii needs to diversify off of military and tourism. Right? It needs a new economic base. So if you really love this state and you want to make a difference, that's how you're going to do it. So 
there's kind of a personal satisfaction and then an investment in the community. So I would say those two things would be what I would give in terms of advice for people that are here to think about this. Is now a, what's the first step? Take my class. <laughs> <laughs> or I mean, there's other competent professors at, uh, at Scheidler that teach entrepreneurship. That's always a good start. Uh, intern with smaller companies, if you can find startups. Usually startups are looking for interns because they're kind of desperate for people. So get your feet wet a little bit on an internship basis and then figure out is this, is this the right thing for you or not. So I, I highly support internships. I, I encourage that of all my students to get involved. And then, you know, even as a student, my wife, when she was an MBA student at Berkeley, that's how she met Alan, actually. She started a business while she was a student. You know, Zuckerberg did that, right? So um, if you really are excited and enthusiastic about it, you don't have to wait until you graduate. You can begin to experiment on a, kind of a maybe a low level to come up with a business idea, come up with a product that maybe you can sell to your friends and do it. Just go through the run through and gain that kind of first step experience. And then maybe that'll allow you to be confident enough to do it on a more official basis. Yeah. Nothing like being creative keeps you alive. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's another thing too, Jay, is for smaller businesses, creativity is a much bigger element. Sometimes bigger companies, creativity gets kind of crushed a little bit. Yeah. I always had to fight my way around that. I was able to do it. But even HP in its glory days it really didn't encourage creativity. The guy who founded the printer business, he had to move out of headquarters because there's no way he could have done it. He went to Boise, Idaho, where you know, there was nobody. So he escaped from the, the crushing forces of the headquarters. Well, thank you, Steve Zerka. Yes, it's my uh, pleasure. Entrepreneur and uh, teacher of entrepreneurism yes. uh, and venture capitalist and uh, a teacher in Shiloh College. Thank you so much. It may interest you to know that ThinkTech is a startup. Oh, very good. Congratulations <laughs> on your success. Thank you, Thank you very much. Aloha.